The Opportunities Party, also known as TOP, has appointed its new leader, Raf Manji. Am I pronouncing that right, Raf? Uh, Raf. Raf Manji. Yeah. Raf has a background in finance. He's a former Christchurch city councillor and has worked with central government through the Human Rights Commission and the Police Assurance and Risk Committee. Good morning, Raf, and thank you for joining. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me. So first, the obvious question, why TOP? Look, I think TOP, for me, is a party that's focused on outcomes and solving problems. And that's what I think politics is about, as opposed to purely ideological arguments about big state, small state. Um, I think the world is so complex these days that actually if we just focus on solving some of the problems, um, that's probably the best we can do. Otherwise, we'll be arguing about stuff uh, forever. And solving problems is what matters to people. And I think that's what attracts me to top. So that's an interesting kind of a mission statement for a political party. It's it's very broad. Is there a risk that if the um, if the rationale is solving problems or, or finding evidence based policy, that actually opens you up to, um, to to adopting any any position on any issue because everyone has their own evidence, everyone has mm. their own solutions. Yeah, and I, and I think we've got to be clear. So, I mean, when I talk about rebalancing the system, I think there are some structural problems in the way that. I guess our regulatory and policy settings are structured, which don't lead to good outcomes for people, which don't provide a kind of fair playing field and don't create opportunities for all. So there's definitely a focus on particular issues. And in fact, I had a conversation with the policy committee last night, um, you know, talking about the big stuff, UBI, housing and tax, uh, the environment, um, monetary and fiscal framework, new social contract, which is kind of, let's say, the bigger picture. Um, and yeah, we've got policies on a lot of different things. And I said, actually, that's fine, but that's not the priority. We don't actually have to have a policy on everything. If we're going to be a credible party in parliament and make good legislation and play a part in policy development, sure, we need to have a good approach to, to our policy making, but we don't need to have a view on everything. I guess what I'm wondering is to what extent is the top party a blank slate where a new leader can come in and actually project their agenda onto it. I mean, it was famously started by Gareth Morgan, who was, let's say, a noisy man with views on <laughs> a grab bag of issues yeah, yeah. from constitutional mm. issues to uh, uh, taxation issues to, to cats. Yeah. Uh, do you see the party or did you choose the party because you thought it was particularly malleable in a certain way? I think, I mean, not really. I mean, I have spoken to political parties over the years because I've been interested in politics for a long time uh, and finance. I mean, I've spoken to the Greens, I've spoken to National. Um, I think I even voted ACT once. Um, I haven't really spoken to Labour much because probably, yeah, command and control is not my thing. So that kind of <laughs> is a bit problematic Interesting. Uh, around then. But in, in terms of, yeah, if you think about the framework, for me, it's about sustainability. And even when I was in the financial markets, especially in the late 90s, I started to look at that stuff a lot more. And so really for me, it's how do you design a sustainable society? And I think top to me is kind of in that space. So you might look at it and say, oh, there's a bit of kind of green. Oh, oh there's a bit of kind of act. Oh, there's a bit of national. There's a bit of labor. So you might think it's a bit of everything. Mm. Um, but the overarching framework for me are those core issues about kind of, you know, the people, the society that we live in, um, the economic structures that underpin what we do and our use of the environment which is getting more and more critical. Sure. So, yeah. so that's interesting because you've talked about sustainability, which, as you've alluded, people might associate with the Greens mm -hmm. or even the left. Uh, at the same time, you reference the fact you're not interested in command and control, which is uh, more of a market-based approach you might see in national and act. Mm -hmm. 
I'm wondering about your views on simply the size of government. Mm. That is often used as a measure of someone's ideological perspective. Right mm. now, the government's spending around 40% mm. of GDP. Yeah. In the long run, would you like to see that decreased or increased, or do you think that's about right? I actually, I think, and, and this could be, the, let's say, the slight niche for top. I'm not sure that's the right way to look at it. I mean, for me... It's not so much the size of government. I mean, I want good, smart government. Now, I was in local government for six years, and I got a very cl close look at that, and I engaged with central government a lot. And boy, yeah, there are a lot of places we can do things much better and save money in terms of trying to get the same outcomes. And I mean, the, we, we talked briefly about the three waters. That's another example of governments creating this massive framework. And the amount of money that goes into developing these things is eye-watering. Most of it you don't need. And it's because they haven't actually defined the problem correctly in the first place. So they take a very structural approach to saying, this is actually how we would like the world to work and we're gonna draw some lines on a map. So it's not so much, I mean, and this is the argument, I guess, in the monetary fiscal space is where does the spending happen? Where does the debt sit? And I mean, that's all kind of a bit maybe technical for a lot of people, but when you think about labor uh, in the early 2000s and Cullen, um, you know, talking about getting public debt down. All that does is push the debt into the private sector. And that's exactly, and the chart's just showing that private sector debt went through went through the roof. Uh, when Phil Goff was arguing or de debating with John Key in the show me the money um, debate, I think, you know, Phil Goff was saying we're going to pay government debt down to zero. It just shows a lack of understanding of actually how the money system works. You need a certain stock of money if it's not coming through government debt. It's coming through the private sector. Otherwise, the economies con will contract and you have a recession, you have a depression. So the government spending bit is, I mean, I don't agree with Axe's approach to you know, zero base everything, but yeah, you should have a look at all the spending and think, is it having the desired outcome? And do we need to be doing it? Or could we be doing it in a much better way? Thinking yeah. about this from, I guess, a, a public choice perspective, yeah. uh, if you give the government free reign to take out large amounts of debt, does mm. it not become in a way inevitable that elected politicians will use debt funding, debt-funded spending to uh, build up legacy projects, re-election projects, uh, without an eye to efficiency. I'm just wondering how you manage that. Yeah, tension. I mean, I, look, I think you're absolutely right, and I completely understand, you know, the public choice perspective around that and why, in, you know, independent central banks were introduced and why those tools were taken away from politicians. And... You're right, and probably we we still have that same impetus. I'm I'm hoping that top will bring a different approach to that public spending. So even if you look at the Auckland Transport Plan, which I'm not over in great detail, but I, but I, I do follow it and I listen to people who are saying actually you don't need to dig tunnels, um, and I'm very much in the approach that actually we do have a lot of infrastructure uh, and their roads. Um, they've been good since the Romans built them. You can yes. do a lot of things with a road. Obviously, for the listeners, the context yes. here is the uh, $14.6 billion 40, yeah. tram proposal. Well, I'm kind of I'm long at $14 billion because they're not going to deliver it for that. Um, and yeah, you could say they just thought, crikey, we need to do something. Let's get this product because we were supposed to deliver light rail by 2021. So you're, you're right. And I just think, and this was a problem I had at council, was trying to get people to think in a different way about spending and in terms of what were the priorities and one of the good outcomes of the earthquakes was the what was called the skirt project which was the alliance contracting model which delivered a lot of the earthquake repairs across the roads um, the waters 
and other basic, you know, other horizontal infrastructure. And that worked really well because they had a sort of internal competitive system going in terms of how they shared sort of over and under um, budgets, pain and gain. And that worked quite well because you sort of said, this is the work that needs to be done because we need the water working, we need the roads fixed, and we need the horizontal infrastructure. And they were able to work quite well. They had a long, um, I guess, outlook on the work. They could organize the workforce well. But you're right. I mean, I guess it's, it's still, but can you trust politicians? I mean, that's why I think the, for me, the monetary and fiscal framework needs to be looked at. So I'm not saying I've got the answer for that, but in terms of inflation itself is not a good enough measure. I mean, we've seen that the history of the last 20 years, I mean, starting with Japan, um, then 2001 uh, in the US and the Greenspan put the global financial crisis, everything that's happened in that shows you that inflation doesn't give you all the answers in terms of interest rates going up and down. So we need some fiscal indicators and we don't have that. So in a way, when you talk about the size of government, you know, I think you're kind of also needing to think about, well, what measures do we have on the other side? Is it a nominal GDP number? Is it a nominal GDP number adjusted for certain outcomes? Um, I don't know, but I think you're, you're right. We need and certainly judging by a lot of the politicians we have, we need some changes there. So, sure. yeah, that, that's going to be a trust issue, better transparency. Sure. Yeah. I've, I've been looking at um, some of TOP's older policies, but I, I understand a lot of them are still current, or at least they're priorities for you. Uh, the flagship um, policy is probably the universal basic income, just yeah. confirming you still see that as yeah. a priority. Yeah, I mean, I'll be, I'll be frank, that for me... And I know not everyone likes it, but I think it is will be the most powerful structural change in the welfare system since you know the 1930s, whenever the welfare system started, because welfare doesn't work anymore. It was designed for a different era. And all labor does is kind of keep fiddling and adding and fiddling and adding and it just creates a huge mess. So take all that away, give, give everyone you know a basic level of income, which at the household level can actually be quite supportive remove all those abatement issues for people who want to work part-time or do little bits of work or are getting back into work or are doing other things which are not compensated monetarily. Flatten the tax system, which is the other side of it. But for me, yeah, UBI, I don't think I'd be doing this if UBI wasn't the flagship sure. policy, just because I, th sure. I believe so strongly that that is, is crucial. Sure. So I can see the positives uh, in terms of reduced administration costs and certainly um, stronger incentives to remain working. You're not punished uh, by working with, um, you're not punished for working by losing part of your, your benefit payment. Uh, that said, the sheer cost of a UBI must be extremely high. I know the top party's previous policy was 250 a week for every yep. adult. Uh, that's that's got to be in the realm of $50 billion a year. I think, because I was looking at the numbers, that they've actually got it, it laid out in a, in a you know, kind of graph form. I think it's $35 billion was what they okay. estimated was kind of the additional cost. I guess if you introduce, introduce the UBI, in theory, you're removing other benefits. At the same yes, time. exactly. So you take away a lot of that stuff um, in terms of admin costs, but other types of benefits that are already being paid, like supported living payment. Um, and yeah, it's it's a lot of money. And generally, when people have looked into it, like Treasury looked into it in 2010, um, you know, people go, oh, yeah, we can't afford it. But they just sort of say, this is what it costs. They don't think about the other side, because you can't do this thing in isolation. Um, so obviously, the tax side of it is quite critical. Now that the current top policy, and it still is the current policy was essentially a tax on equity um, in, in the homes. And again, that was about 
improving you know capital efficiency um, and recognizing that kind of deemed return um the tax working group looked at it i mean i read their stuff actually you know, i mean i've been on these working groups and again sometimes sometimes they work really well if you've got a really good chair who's open to listening like the trade for all working group fantastic bunch of people there and really good outcomes um, I think the tax working group was chaired by Michael Cullen, so he would have <laughs> fairly a firm view on what was going to yes. be. And in. they were also given certain restraints where yeah. they, they were told explicitly they could not advocate for a tax on the family home. Yeah. Which, uh, is, is, which is crazy. I mean, to me, that none of this works if you kind of exclude the family home as some kind of sacrament. And what does that even mean these days? I mean, it might mean something to some people. It's got to be the major <laughs> unit of wealth held by New Zealanders. Yes, but if you think about it, a lot of that, when we call it wealth, is unearned income. You know, I mean, the house. I mean, so in a way, what um, I'm looking at in terms of land value tax, which is not new, it's been around for 150 years. Um, I don't kind of care what people put on the land. So so in a way, you know, so if you build a sort of super massive house, you're not getting taxed on that. Sure. So just to clarify, yeah. so the top party's previous policy was yeah. it was described as a wealth tax. It was a tax uh, on equity. Yes. Uh, and, and you're you're considering a shift towards a land tax, yes, which is actually something you might be surprised to hear the taxpayers union uh, is is quite open to. We we submitted to the tax working group right. and raised a land tax as an alternative to a capital gains tax, assuming you are uh, hell bent on taxing wealth. And we also said um, a condition of that would be that revenues from that tax should be used to cut. Uh, tax on income or company yeah. tax, which is a, which is kind of essentially it's in the same space at least you can argue over over the numbers and yeah so I've asked the policy committee to go back have a look um, at the deemed return. There was another paper out by retirement, oh not the retirement commission but another retirement thingy, um, looking at a slightly different version of that um, and look at the LVT and just stress test them together because the tax working group didn't look at it properly at all. Um, and funny enough, in the US at the moment, there is quite a movement. Certainly, I mean, there's a, the macro debate at the moment is fierce. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. Now, maybe it's because Twitter's so big and so a lot of people are coming together that never would have been connected together. I mean, that's the upside of, of, of Twitter. <laughs> um, great discussions on inflation, great discussions on, you know, global macro and the monetary framework, um, but also tax. And obviously, you know, land value tax is becoming quite well known quite well debated you know the efficiency of land and we and we know supply of land is a big issue the urban boundary um, zoning restrictions has driven up the price of land and therefore made people feel like they're wealthier which they are because if you then go and sell your house and the family home no tax on it I've been, I've been in that same position and yeah it's um it's distortionary as well um, sure so the, so the land value tax that you're interested yeah. in would cover the land beneath the family home. Yeah, and I, and I thought about it when I was on council and looking at the rating system. And actually there was a guy, Bob Keel, I think in Auckland, people probably know him, he used to send out, you know, resource rentals tax and all this stuff, which, you know, in the sort of 2000s, I don't know if he's still around, but I, I was looking obviously at the difference between the land value portion and the capital value, because we've got the information. Now in the US, one of the, discussions is how to get the land value piece we've already got it we've got all that data available um, so we're kind of half the way there and when you look at local government rates you could argue that that is 
really a wealth tax yes. because it's actually yes. this is how much we're going to spend. Trust me, we, our, our members point that all the, yeah, all the time. And, and we that. and every year I remember when we did the rate thing, we had to kind of explain the same thing again that actually it's not based on the value of your property; it's the differential. So if you've got a big house, you're going to pay a lot more. And I'm surprised actually. Often a lot of people, I think actually to be honest, when you're well off. And I was one of those people paying high rates. You just kind of go, yeah, okay, fine. Um, not the end of the world, but <laughs> but that is, is is the reality. Sure. So thinking about the experience of, I guess you might say the user experience of a land value tax. Uh, you let's say you're retired and you live in a house you own, but you don't necessarily have much in the way of income. Yeah. In fact, you might be living paycheck to paycheck mm. on superannuation. So you're asset rich on paper. Uh, would you be forced to remortgage your home in order to pay a land tax of whether it's 1% or 2% a year? No, it would be what I call postponed. So I actually brought this policy in in Christchurch because I had those calls just about superannuation um, recipients who were struggling to pay rates. And there's all these kind yes. of rates things you can do. But I actually said, no, we need a better policy because land prices have gone up so much. This now has become a problem. In the past where land you know prices were reasonably stable, yes. You didn't notice it, but now, yeah. So I had, you know, let's say a a, um, a single old pensioner um, living in her home, and it might have been, you know, a quarter acre section, uh, and she, you know, she's living in a old three bedroom bungalow. So the improvements piece is pretty minimal, and she's getting these huge rates bills because the land value has gone through the roof. And so I said, okay, we need to do something about this. So I said, okay, we will develop a policy. It was called the rates postponement policy. And essentially, you could offset um, any rates payments against uh, your home, essentially against the land. And I, I, I did all the maths, and you know, it checks out. Um, and yeah, no problems in terms of what the cost would be and the funding. So in terms of res reverse mortgage, you know, with the with the market, this would be funded at council borrowing rates. So essentially, it'd be an okay. Excel spreadsheet. Yes. You have your account, and each year, the rates just get added, and the the cost is the council's cost of capital. Yes. And in fact, staff tried to add on all kinds of things. I said, no, forget it. There's no cost here. It's just in our kind of, you know. So when are the rates, or I guess in the case of a hypothetical, yeah. a hypothetical when is the land tax actually paid? Is it on the sale of the house? Yes. Or are, are we in practice? Yeah. In practice, yeah. talking about the death of the homeowner? Or and probably when, the, well, either or. Um, so if, so let, let's say that, I mean, that's a scenario. So let's say somebody, the, the homeowner dies. And somebody moves in from the family and just kind of takes it over. Obviously, it would continue, but at the same time, they can pay it down any time they want. So it's sitting there as a liability. You've yes. got the asset, the liability. But essentially, once the house is sold, that 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 would get cleared. Sure. From a revenue perspective, yeah. doesn't that make the policy a, a less stable uh, source of revenue because um, people may defer their rates, and then due to macroeconomic conditions, mm -hmm. suddenly everything comes at once. Yeah, look, in some, in some respects, I think really that is a case for um, retired people on super. Now, you know, without getting too macabre about this stuff, if you look at sort of the the living um, expectations around sort of um, number of years, 20, 30, yeah. whatever. So that was, you know, I modeled all that in and said, well, how many years could you do this if prices fell? So I, I did all those models. And of course, the thing is, um, if you get into a position where house prices fall, let's say we have the Japanese position, which is pretty unusual um, in that their bubble was, you know, just a, an absolute catastrophe. 
Um, but let's say house prices fall, inflation is going to fall as well. So interest rates are going to fall. And that's what we've seen. So when you put those all those things into the model, you've got there's a huge amount of, you know, beef, as it were. Okay. Yeah. Thinking about the revenues from this tax. Yep. So we've talked about uh, the universal basic income. Yep. And I've also seen it reported that uh, you're interested in rebalancing the tax system towards land taxes and away from taxing income. Yeah. Now, I, I read that as reductions in income tax. Mm. So the question then becomes... <laughs> Probably not quite. I mean, you can say it is It's a reduction. I mean, it is a, if you look at, say, the GST uh, income tax switch of whenever... Yes, um, 2018 or 2011. Yeah. So GST went up, consumption tax, um, basic consumption tax, income tax rates got cut. I can't even yes. remember what they were. Um now that probably benefited people in the middle, people at the lower end who are consuming one hundred percent of their income actually probably impacted them worse. Um, so in terms of in the income tax switch, and and looking at, at the numbers that that Top had proposed, I think basically anyone under seventy thousand a year would be better off. So you could say it's an income tax for people earning under seventy thousand dollars a year. Anyone only over seventy thousand dollars a year, marginal. And then obviously as you go up, that's when it starts to bite. Yeah. Okay. So it wouldn't necessarily be a reduction in the total amount of income tax paid? Not necessarily, no. Is it Because I think it's really, this is essentially a tax switch. The the bit, I think, so that, that's one conversation. The other conversation in terms of government spending and therefore reducing the amount of taxation required, that's a, a separate conversation, which I'm very excited sure. to have. <laughs> sure. You know, Because that, that's when we sure. get into the nitty gritty of what is, is being sure. spent. Like this is interesting, though, because one of the arguments in favour of the UBI, yeah. as we've covered, is mm -hmm. that um, it improves the incentives to seek work. Yeah. Uh, however, you're also talking about increasing the level of progressivity in the income tax system. Does that not decrease the incentive to upskill, to work over time, to gain a promotion? I don't, no, I don't think so, because I, th I think when you get down to the people's side, and I think I, I saw some comments about, you know, people just going to lie around all day. Well, they're not. Um, and all the research shows that that's not the case, that actually it frees people up to do stuff, to retrain. But that's, I mean, on the, yeah. that's on the UBI side, yes, yeah, but yeah. I'm, I'm referring to the introduction of more progressivity into our tech system. I, don't, I actually don't think it makes any difference. I think it, in, in practical terms... Yeah, I mean, people might look at their overall tax burden, but I don't think it's enough to stop them doing what they want to do, whether they want to take a new job, whether they want to retrain. I mean, what tends to drive people more crazy is is petrol prices or food prices or things like that. I think their overall tax, you know, let's say the tax goes up a thousand bucks a year compared to them making a life change. I think the life change carries a lot more weight. But, you know, I mean, obviously that that's arguable, but sure, I, that's my kind of experience in dealing with people, um, well, pro you know, at the lower end working, you know, with budget services and, and those kind of more social NGOs, but also people I know who are professionals earning, you know, 100,000 over, they don't actually... That that doesn't drive them. It's that, other things that drive that, them. That may hold true if we're referring to a marginal change in tax brackets mm. if a tax rate goes from 30% to 33%. But if you consider the total impact of that 33% tax bracket, surely that's removing a third of the incentive to upskill uh, to gain a promotion. Look, I mean, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, we'll discuss that, certainly. I don't think so. I don't think that holds people back. I think the way the world is these days, people make decisions, you know, based not just on kind of tax rates. But, you know, I think it's when they start to bite and people start to feed back, actually, this is a bit much. Um, and it could be my disposable income is going down because 
everything else is going up in price. And you could argue that whilst for people who own property, you know, land prices going up is great. They also, a lot of people know, because I've had the feedback from, say, people my age with kids, um, they're all worried. Sure. Even though they're doing really well, they're getting it in the neck <laughs> from their kids. So they really, yeah. so a lot of them have called me and gone, look, Raf, we, we've got to do something about this. And yeah, they don't support the government. So you'd be surprised. A lot of them are coming, you know, I'm f- from Fendleton, um, Islam. Uh, a lot of my supporters, you would say probably national supporters, as well as Green and, you know, some Labour. But those ones on, on the national side, they're all worried because there's the de-stab- you know, the destabilisation of kids. the system. And they've got kids. And they kind of life, they like life a certain way. Yeah. And but to be, they don't like it when it's going out of not, control. Not to be macabre once yeah. more, but <laughs> there is the issue. Um, inheriting a house is all well and dandy, but these days when people are living until 85 or 90, you might not inherit that property until you're uh, 70 years old yourself. Yes, totally. I mean, I mean, that's the thing. There are, we are, I mean, in a way, and we haven't really talked about why, why top a little bit, but why top for me now is the timing. So I was at university in the mid 80s, came out of university, went into the markets, 87 crash, went traveling for a couple of years, backpacking, you know, came to New Zealand, then back went into markets. And I just think the time, it feels like the end of a cycle. You know, we've had a kind of 30, 35 year cycle, things are changing. And I think this is the time where we're going to make the sort of changes we saw in the mid to late 80s, hopefully with more attention to the impacts because of the lessons of, of the 80s. And you can see it politically with, with Trump, with Brexit, Russia and China joining forces. There's some big stuff happening. And, you know, little old New Zealand kind of potters along and the international rule system is all good and dandy and you're going, well, I don't think so. So, you know, so we, so I think we're going to see some big changes. And if we don't get on top of them now, we're going to have a problem. And Labour's approach is just head in the sand. Sure. And obviously a massive source of this tension and frustration is housing, uh, not just house prices, but also rental prices. I'm interested, um, what in your view is the most, what in your view are some of the most damaging proposals that you have seen to rein in house prices and rent control? Well, sorry, rent prices. <laughs> you answered the Look, I don't <laughs> support rent controls. Um, but in an emer- we're in an emergency situation. So the, one of the things that's frustrated me a little bit about the last couple of years, the way the Reserve Bank's approached it, Treasury, the Minister of Finance, is a lack of understanding that we're in a pandemic economy which has similarities to a war economy. And they all kind of thought we're going to be in a, dep- it, was a it was a classic business cycle depression. Well, it was clear after three, four months that wasn't the case. Yes. We shut the doors and everyone went about their business. And actually you had a huge amount of domestic consumption, which suddenly was unloaded all over the shop. And, and we're seeing the outcomes there. And they didn't react. And they were asked about that in August, September 2020. Cloth is, and they still have cloth. I mean, you know, th- th- they've lost the plot completely. Um, so I'm trying to remember what your question was there. <laughs> what are the damaging proposals oh, yeah. that you see in response to our housing crisis? Okay, so what I suggested yesterday is you've got to do a lot of things at once because this is like, you know, the keyboard you've got there. You can't just move one thing. So rent controls on their own are not going to help. But what I suggested was a rent break where you could say set rent increases at 3%, say, because that's the top end of the inflation ban for two years. Remove the landlord tax. 
That was probably the worst tax Labour brought out. The Treasury hadn't even costed it. I mean, it was a complete joke. You're referring to the removal of interest deductibility. Yeah, yeah. It's stupid because actually, so what a What's it called? The so-called loophole grant oh, look, Yeah, it's just it's nonsense. Because um, actually, all it does make landlords put rents up, especially when they go, they call their accountant and go, "What does this mean?" The accountant goes, Shh, "Oh, it's five grand a year cash. Thank you very much." So, what do they do? Jack up rents. So, if you take that off at the same time, you might they might go, "Oh God, I can only put rents up three percent this year, but I'm not going to get whacked over here." So, net net, they're okay. better off. So that that's a kind of okay. A mixed uh, approach, you might call mixed, it. Yeah, and to be honest, a lot of for me, a lot of these policies are mixed. You can't do one without the other. You're currently sounding extremely left wing and extremely right wing. <laughs> okay, well then maybe you got me right because that's that's how I I can think with the left and right brain, and I think that's unusual. I mean, a lot of people always you know struggled to pigeonhole me, and I'm going, why do you need to pigeonhole me? It's like this is my background. Uh, I mean, you know, when I when I went on council, People's Choice. Labour took an instant dislike to me, um, which continued for a long time because I dared mention, oh, let's have a look at the balance sheet. Let's have a look at, you know, we might have to sell some assets because local government is different to central government. We're not a sovereign currency issuer. Central government doesn't need to sell assets. Um, local government, well, actually, we do need to look at that stuff. And actually, what I did do was conducted a takeover and delisting of Littleton Port, which added to our assets because I thought we'd be then in better control, which has worked out well. But a lot of them voted against that because I did it. They thought I was, you know, doing some kind of <laughs> dodgy maneuver. Yeah. So it's that, you know, inability to talk to people, even if you disagree with their ideas or proposals, not talking is, is not good. Okay. Some quick fire hmm. questions. Uh, what is your least favorite text? Oh, good question. Hmm. It could be one we already have, or it could be one that you uh, sometimes hear people propose. Uh, I don't know, actually. I, don't, I, I mean, personally, I'm not that worried. Um, least favourite tax? Well, well um, consumption taxes. Uh, obviously, we have high tax on tobacco. I, am I correct in remembering Top has previously advocated for other consumption taxes? On I think sugar? they probably alcohol. I think they certainly support the Law Commission's um, recommendations around alcohol pricing. Um, I know Eric's not a big fan of that, but... Um, Eric Crampton. Yeah, I mean, I think hypothecated taxes are good. So if you're going to tax a bad, if the if you can see the money is going back into supporting or changing that, whatever, fine. Sure. And then, um, we, then we run into the public choice uh, problem again. Yeah, trust board that absolutely. Should and, and that is a big problem. And I'm told, you know, if you said to me, I mean, people often said, oh, who, who's a politician you admire in Parliament? Okay. Uh, I like Chloe, actually. She's nice. <laughs> Um, but, um, yeah, it's a bit of a struggle, isn't it? Because people do get self-interested. That's the challenge. Um, and it's a bit, you know, I don't particularly want to be in parliament. It looks a horrible lifestyle, but, um, I'm certainly prepared to do it for (laughs) for what Top is about. Um, single most effective proposal to improve the supply of housing. Um, this is probably going to sound strange, actually, because I've been involved personally and regulatory at all these levels, funding the community housing sector to build houses. If you want to clear the public housing wait list, give them the money to build and say, keep building until you've got minus 500 people on the waiting list. That will clear because you can you can rezone land. And I mean, and Christchurch, I remember this conversation. Uh, we were looking at land supply out to 2028. So this was 20. 
2017, 2018, and they said we got enough sections out to 2028. And I said, that's great now, but I want to come back in three years and you tell me you've got enough sections out to 2031 and 2034, because that's what kept a lid on land sure. prices. Now, it doesn't necessarily deliver the houses. That's the point. You've still got to build the damn things. Um, but certainly the experience of Christchurch, and this is something that Jerry did a good job on because he fought quite hard. He wanted to go much harder, actually, um, is, yeah, is supply of land. How would that work in a, a place like Wellington where some people argue there is not land available? Oh, I, I live here. There's loads of land available. <laughs> There's a lot of dungers you could knock down. It's incredible. And we live we live on hills in Wellington and some places they couldn't even imagine. I I walk around and go, how the hell did they build that thing? I mean, New Zealand is great at engineering because we've had to be. But you there you could build, you could build, you could get 10,000 more people in here in two or three years. Okay. If you were kingmaker in 2023, what would your bottom line policy requirement or requirements be? Yep. The, the UBI tax switch. UBI. Yeah. But the UBI and... With the with, whether with it's a yeah, so UBI and property tax. That's a kind of yeah. There's no if you're not going to have that conversation, okay. you'll just go and sit in the corner. Okay. Do you support Gareth Morgan's proposal for an upper house with fifty percent Maori representation? Ooh, I, I looked at that. I saw that question. I looked at the policy. That must have been a 2017 policy. It's not yes. in the current democracy reset. Um, upper house, upper house. Um, ah, look. No, I mean, I'm open to it, but I don't think it's something that's you know. A, a necessity. Um, obviously, there's a lot of issues to discuss around the treaty. I'm I, in terms of the democracy stuff. I'm quite. I mean, I do like citizens' assemblies, but again, they introduced one to deal with the gilets jaunes in France. Macron came in, but they kind of they often will say, "Oh yeah, we like your recommendations." They don't do anything unless you've got the power to implement. I mean, I've sat in with the PM, made recommendations. I accept them all. But I've got no way of making uh, sure. implement them. So it becomes more of a gesture. Than yeah. That. So I, I like lowering the voting age to sixteen, um, and I do. I, we've got to reform local and central government. So in a way, the three waters has come before um, the horse. The horse is the reform of local and central government. That yes. also structurally is yes. going to be a big issue for New Zealand because if you want to know where a lot of the waste is, it's in that nexus, because essentially local government and central government are like software systems like iOS and Android, they don't integrate very well. Now, when there was a big gap between them, didn't matter. No one cared about local government. Local government's big. The Auckland City balance sheet is massive. Christchurch City balance sheet is massive. These are big organizations and they're operating in completely different systems. Um, that needs to change. Okay. Name one example of wasteful government spending that you think could be scrapped overnight. <laughs> Oh God! <laughs> what do I start? Um, government spending. It can be small if you like. Probably. Are they still doing that shovel ready fund. <laughs> um, yes, they are. <laughs> yeah, that was I, silly. We're certainly not above going um, after small spending items at the tech. Yes, I, I know. Because some, sometimes I'm... they can be an, an uh, emblematic of a wide culture of waste. Yeah. No. Um, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. There's just a lot. I think it's the, the approach they take. Um, and at local government, you're right. The same. And it's, um, it's get actually, I've said to people, it's just get the basics right. That's all, from a government perspective, that's all the people want. Yes, they want law and order, they want to feel safe, but they want the basics. And everything else that goes on top of that, they don't necessarily want. It's not on my list of questions, but seeing as you brought it up, thinking about local government, uh, the, the role of lo local government defined in the Local Government Act is, yeah. 
it was replaced in 2018 with the four well-beings, yeah. uh, which removed the requirement for uh, value for money as you know as as a function of local government. Yeah. Do you support those changes? No, I mean the problem is, and I, I did a talk on this to a bunch of senior officials actually, where I, I said actually one of the big risks that the country faces is the mismatch between local and central government. So in 2002, they had the four well-beings. 2012, they took them out. 2018, I said, you can't operate like this. Local government's a massive beast. You can't keep chopping and changing. That's what I, I object to the most. Because of course, local government is trying to do well-being, but they're not structured to do that. They're supposed to collect revenue to deliver basic infrastructure. And at the local level, yes, should that include libraries? Yes. What kind of libraries these days? That's debatable. You put swimming pools and libraries together, you know, that kind of stuff. But central government's coming down on top with all their stuff. Yes, yes. You know, the Metro Sports Facility in Christchurch, which was a, a kind of post-earthquake thing. God knows what the final cost on that's going to be. But um, to me, the biggest community facility in the country. Yes, it does. It does seem... It's going to cost a fortune to run. Now, all people in Christchurch wanted is, can we have our 25 meter times eight lap pool back in the center of town. It, it does seem as though local, local councils are actively trying to expand their remit while also being encouraged and given the mandate to do so by central government. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's why, you know, they've overlapped now in a Venn diagram. And in that middle, there's huge amounts of unnecessary sure. spending because it's duplication. So you can probably strip billions out of that stuff. And if you can get local government to go back to doing the basics and that take the pressure off them, because actually at the nuts and bolts level, I mean, certainly in Christchurch and probably because of the earthquakes, they're much better at the infrastructure. When I look at Wellington, it looks like Christchurch pre-earthquakes and post-earthquakes. The, the incentives are all wrong. The, the council has not invested in the basic infrastructure. So if you actually just said to councils, three waters and the basics, end of story. And yes, you want a library, fine. Swimming pool, fine. If you want to upgrade your pool, a specialist pool like Candala, do a kind of local rate capture or whatever, great. Sure. Thank you. And just, um, I guess, before we finish away from politics and policy, uh, one music recommendation and one film recommendation for our listeners. Oh, yes. Well, I did um, a bunch of videos for the Opportunities Party Members Lounge on Facebook. So if you want to see them, you can join up. But um my favourite video was, uh, it's an, uh, an old banger from the 80s, uh, Prince Charles and the City Beat Band, um, and it's called Cash, Cash Money. It's a great tune. <laughs> if you think about who, who's making all the money. We'll put it in the link in the uh, description yeah, of the yeah. podcast. Film-wise, I mean, my favourite film, which I did watch recently, was uh, The Insider. Um, Not seen it. Um, it's, it's great. Um, Al Pacino, Christopher Plummer, um, Russell Crowe. Fantastic movie. Uh, and I actually watched Interstellar the other night, which I love. Great. Because Christopher Nolan yes. is fantastic. Yeah, um, agreed. Yeah. Very good. Thank you so much for joining Taxpayer Talk, Ref. Uh, and I hope to follow your campaign closely next year, but also just to see what you're saying in the year to come. Yeah, good. And I appreciate the questions. Thanks. Great.